HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And you know, every country has its customs and traditions surrounding food, and none more special to me than Italy. Having lived in Rome for a, a period of time ages ago, I have a special fondness for Italian cuisine and its traditions. And that includes keeping up on the latest happenings in the Roman restaurant world when I do travel. And I was fortunate enough to be able to travel to Rome last month. And while I was there, I also had the opportunity to sit down and visit with someone who knows the latest happenings in restaurants very well. She is food writer and food and travel writer, Elizabeth Minkeely. And Elizabeth has just published a fun and very informative book called Eating Rome. And she joins me today by telephone from that eternal city. Elizabeth, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Linda. Well, um, it was so much fun to visit with you and and hear firsthand um, some of your impressions of what's going on today in the food scene in Rome. But through your book and through your travel apps, it's you know one discovers so much more, um, and that is that um, there is there really is a tradition and such a history well history goes without saying in that city um, but there are many different i guess kind of cultural traditions surrounding a lot of the food of Italy and you started out well started out you still do a lot of um, when I say like shelter writing garden and and home decor type um, mm-hmm. writing what made you venture into the food world well I've always been writing about food. I think probably my work writing about uh, design and architecture and gardens uh, probably was a little bit more well-known just because I've written six books on the subject. 
but I've always been writing about food for magazines like Bon Appetit and Food and Wine, and um, and I've always been a I don't know if I can say a pretty accomplished cook myself. <laughs> That's and, okay. Uh, you got is a good accomplished eater <laughs> for sure. And um, so I've been writing about restaurants and things for a long time. Um, and when I sort of made the move to write almost only about food was when I started my blog, which was five years ago. And at that point. I sort of had to decide what, what the blog was going to be about, what, what aspect of my life. And it almost wasn't a decision. It, it came quite naturally. People were asking me lots of questions at the time, and, and all the questions had to do with food. Although they might be cultural at their base, they, they wanted real practical information, like, like what are your favorite restaurants in Rome, how do you cook that eggplant, things like that. And so the, so the blog sort of turned in to being predominantly about food in a na- very natural and organic way. It just took on a life of its own, right? It, it did. <laughs> well, you know, it was. it's interesting because one of the uh, main portions of my suitcase whenever I would travel, of course, would always be the heavy and multiple guidebooks. But now you've even ventured even further into that food writing and travel writing where you've developed or written apps for um, for dining in many different cities. Tell me about those. Well, I started writing, you know, I've always had that little list that I would give to people. And, you know, back in the day when, when we actually used paper, the, the list would get printed out and, and faxed to people, and, and then eventually it became something I would I would send via email until, you know, the whole possibility of writing an app uh, became possible. And I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity for me to keep my list, keep it updated, and, and actually start charging people for it, which was, <laughs> which was a bonus. Yeah. And so I started out with writing an uh, app to Rome called Eat Rome, and that was successful, so I followed up with Eat Florence and Eat Venice, and, and those three apps have been bestsellers on iTunes almost since I wrote them. And just recently, last month, I was sort of pushed to, to expand them. And I've changed them a bit, I've, and I've now written an app called Eat Italy. And within that app, you're able to buy the different cities. So I still have Florence, Venice, and Rome, but I'm adding cities and regions. And my first new city that I've added is Eat Milan. And I've done this because I think about a billion people in the world are headed towards Milan to go see Expo, and I figured they'd right. like to know, you know, <laughs> places to eat. But also just because I love Milan, and I think people often overlook it as a destination, a culinary destination, which it should, which it should be in its own right. Well, you certainly are saving us on paying any extra freight to have all those books, those those <laughs> restaurant guide books with us. I mean, it truly is uh, such a convenience to just open your phone and, and have a little travel app. But have, what, have a little me in your back pocket. That's Right <laughs> there, you go. Um, but what I what I loved about the, um, the your book so much is that you give such interesting little anecdotes and and truly historical background information that a lot of people don't understand about you know some of the those cultural traditions that I I referred to earlier and I such as let's we met when we when I was in Rome last month we met in a coffee shop and. You have a wonderful um, chapter about coffee and the whole etiquette of ordering a coffee and when you drink the coffee. Tell us a little bit about the whole coffee culture. Well, one of the most perplexing things I find for people who are coming to Rome and Italy in general for the first time, you know, they it's it's a completely different way of, of having coffee. And where a lot of people 
first, the first misconception is that there is no takeout coffee. So once you get over that sort of hump, you know, if you go into a bar, a coffee bar, and you order a coffee, it's, it's very perplexing how you get that coffee from the machine, you know, into your hands because there's, uh, there's, not, there's etiquette. There's, un, there's written rules to it. For instance, if you're going, most people go into a coffee shop and they go up to the counter and they order their coffee directly from the barista and they drink it standing up. And it seems simple, but before you actually get to that barista, you have to go to a second counter where there's often a woman sitting behind a cash register who, who's probably on the phone or having her own conversation. <laughs> or petting her dog. Her exactly what coffee you'd like first, then you pay for it. Then she gives you a tiny little piece of paper, which you walk over and hopefully get the barista's attention, at which point, you know, he'll ask you what you want, and only then will he give you your coffee. Now, God forbid you should take your coffee and go sit down at a table, which would be sort of the normal North American response to this, because if you want to sit down at a table, there's a whole different set of rules to follow. And so, so seeing people, you know, I, I sort of took pity on them to sort of explain this in the book. Yeah, well, that and it was very kind, because it is a confusing, <laughs> it's a confusing etiquette for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, and then again, there are people who love their types of coffee any time of day. However, if you're in Rome, uh, someone's going to, to point you out as a definitely an outsider or a tourist if you order a cappuccino after lunch, correct? Well, correct, correct. Because And people, people get a little bit you know, nasty about it, too. They, they sort of demand their, their cappuccino after lunch, and, and most people will serve it to you. But there's, there's actually reason behind this, and it's not anything that's snobby. Um, like most things in Italy that have to do with food, it all comes down to digestion and health. <laughs> and the thinking is, is that the last thing in the world you would want after a big lunch, which is uh, after a big meal, which is lunch, is a big cup of warm milk, which is basically what cappuccino is. So, so for the Italians, the thought, you know, that after you'd have maybe pasta, maybe a second course, a dessert, that you would then, on top of that, have something that is very difficult to digest for most adults, which is milk, um, is a little bit perplexing. So, so they'll give it to you, and, um, but they'll be very disapproving right. <laughs> and worried at the same time. Right. How in the world is that person going to be able to digest that? <laughs> right. So instead, you get your little shot of espresso, and you don't, definitely don't sip it, but you just shoot it down. Yep. And that's yep. why it's called a shot of espresso. <laughs> you shoot it down, right? Um, you know, we're talking about etiquette. There is um, there another... Um, type of etiquette that you referred to, traditional um, shopping etiquette at markets, open markets. Now, open markets, one would think that, oh, well, Rome, you know, always has open outdoor markets, but they, much like in um, urban areas everywhere, they sort of, you know, came and went, and now they're back in vogue again. But you found um, quite a, a procedure of, well, not etiquette, if you will, but um, kind of like... The rules to to getting what you want in the outdoor market. Uh, that's well, a story. In fact, yes, because you know you go to these outdoor markets, and and in fact there there aren't a lot of outdoor markets left anymore. And um, but when you when you're there, you have this feeling: oh, it's outside, it's free, everybody's picking their fruits and vegetables. But that's not the case at all. Um, God forbid you should go up and grab your own piece of fruit because or, that's just not done. Or touch um, it, or in, touch in, it even, you, right? You know, if you go to a market and you see the different stands, there's usually an older woman or man or a couple behind them, and you wait in line patiently, and then you tell them what you'd like. 
And not only do you have to know what you would like, you have to know exactly the amount, too. So that's, that's a whole other chapter mm-hmm. in my book about learning quantities. But just back to actually the what. Um, let's say you would like a, you know, a kilo of tomatoes, uh, two pounds of tomatoes. Your first instinct would be to, you know, you would pick, you'd sort of touch them, pick them. Well, no, in a market, you have to trust the woman to give you the tomatoes she thinks you deserve. <laughs> or that you should have. And, you know, sometimes this is based on a conversation. She'll ask you what you're cooking, um, when you're going to be eating that melon. Is it for tonight? Is it for tomorrow? Um, but another part of it is is who you are, and who you are is are you her client? Have you shown her loyalty? Do you come here every single day and buy your fruits and vegetables from her? At which point she starts to give you the better fruits and vegetables, and and you don't have to worry about it so much. But the, the thing you do have to worry is you don't want to cross her, because you know, I, I learned this the hard way. One time I went to the market, and I'd been going to the same woman for quite a long time, and she didn't have, I forget what it was, I, she didn't have asparagus maybe. And so I went to the stand next to her and bought a pound of asparagus, and then I went back to her and bought the rest of my, my groceries, you know, tomatoes and peaches and, and things. And so I went back home, and sure enough, at the bottom of the bag, where there was, you know, one rotten peach, because she had seen me. She'd seen me cheating on her, like, on somebody else. And she sort of not so subtly let me know what was going on. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one way to build your business, but boy, it makes it tough to, it makes it tough to be a selective shopper, that's for sure. Well, you just have to know know the rules and follow them. Then you'll be fine. Yeah, um, you know the the rules of. Um they're all not rules, but again, as I say, you know, customs, customs and traditions that, you know, you it's easy to just slide into, but you know, you have to sort of look around you and look and see what everyone else is doing, and and that even includes often eating in a restaurant. You sort of look around and see, well, let me see, what are the people who look like they're Italians? What are they ordering, and how are they ordering? And of course, you can all just throw all abandon to the wind and just say, hey, I'm here, I want to eat what I want, and I'm ordering the way I want. You know, no one will frown at you. A waiter will occasionally, I'm sure, <laughs> give a, well, a skewed that's, look, that's, right? But one of the things, well, well, for instance, I get a lot of of questions from people, and they say, "Well, how do you, how do you stay so thin? How do you, how do Italians stay thin eating all that pasta, you know, at meals?" And, and but then, you know, I'll be in an, in an Italian restaurant, and I'll look uh, here in Rome, and I'll look around, and I'll see all the Americans that are there, and before the food even comes to the table, they've eaten the entire bread basket. Uh-huh. And they ask for oil to dip the bread in. And this is something that Italians, especially Romans, would never think of doing. They would never think of having bread with oil before a meal. And so when, it, when the Americans say, oh, the pasta is, you know, it's too heavy, it's, it's, it's too much to finish, well, you know, you shouldn't have eaten that basket of bread before it got there. And I hear this again and again from um, restaurant owners here in Rome, and, they, and they re- it's a real cultural difference, I think. And instead, the Americans that are coming here, they're used to having a big basket of bread or breadsticks or whatever at their local Italian restaurant. But it's a really an Italian-American thing. It's not an Italian thing. Right. Yeah, that's interesting, and and yet the Italians, what they will put it down, you know, in on the table, um, oftentimes. Well, they put it down there because it's there for your second course and your salad. Mm-hmm. Right. There's yeah. restraint. Yeah, they would not, you know, it's not a snack. It's not an antipasto, and it's not meant to be eaten with your pasta. It's meant to be eaten with either meat or vegetables. All right. Um, there are, you know, we were talking about the um, markets, and I, I just wanted to go back to that a minute because there over the years and we're talking like over the past 40 you know 30 40 years 
there has been quite an influx of supermarkets, and, and Italians are now doing a lot more shopping at their supermarkets. Um, do you think, does this account for the fact that there aren't so many open markets anymore, and how do you, what do you, how do you see that? Oh, yes, it, it's absolutely related. The, the markets themselves, you know, that, that were here in the, you know, for most of the part of the last century, they sort of started dying out a bit after World War II, when the centers of the city started to, um, people, if they could afford to move to nicer housing on the outskirts of towns, they did. And the, the places where we're seeing now, you know, that are these multi-million dollar beautiful apartments in the center of Rome, they used to be, you know, apartments that would house extended families, you know, 10, 15, 20 people in these apartments. And that was a very dense population that kept these open markets going. Mm. Um, so once this population in the center of the town started to go down, that sort of affected the markets, and they, they started to shrink slowly. But the big changes really came in um, when the euro, when the lira switched over to the euro. And that made it possible for a lot of the big supermarket chains to really move into Italy in a big way, and you've seen that I've seen this in Rome. Huh. So people who um, they've taken over, you know, mom and pop stores with little chains, but they've also opened pretty big um, supermarkets. And the thing is, you know, people now, if you're a family and the women, woman is working, which is also a big change in how people are living now, the the women work as well. If you're a family that doesn't have much time to shop, chances are you're going to head to the supermarket, which has longer hours, cheaper prices. Um, and that's one of the big changes. And so that means that, means that who's really using these open markets and in the end is selling fruits and vegetables. You know, how do you make a living selling zucchini and apples? Yeah. That's another problem in the center of a big city. So, so it's, it's sort of a, a lot of pressure on these markets. Right. At the same time, uh, luckily in the last few years, we've seen a rebound of farmers' markets. Not to be confused with the central, with the open markets that existed previously. Instead, these farmers markets are partially subsidized by the farmers unions here in Italy. And they've seen a rebirth of interest in people wanting to buy local food, wanting to buy organic food. And these markets, which are only open on Saturdays and Sundays, have, are really crowded. And people, it's, it's, I think there's, that shows sort of a rebirth of this interest in buying quality food from from the source right i mean that's always been the foundation of italian cooking is start with the best ingredient so they're still in search of those who who really pride themselves on cooking good dishes are searching for the best ingredients right right absolutely we're gonna talk more about uh the food particularly restaurants and meats when we come back after a short break so don't go away Listening to Daphne and Apollo by Adetta Hartman. This is a taste of the past on Heritage Radio Network.org. One ribbon bounds and up ahead. Treasures fall past the shoulders. I'm not to have anything to do with men. Love pierced Apollo, surrenders.
Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. are back. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Minkeely from Rome. And Elizabeth, it looks like you have your competition set out for you. We've got gardening apps now as well as dining apps. <laughs> um, what I, we were talking about um, the markets and, of course, um, meat markets are something that uh, started a, um, an interesting tradition of dishes and the... Um, the, the meat market in that was originally in the uh, Testaccio neighborhood, the meatpacking district. Uh-huh. Um, there was so there was a lot of a lot of interesting dishes that arose from the the butchers there. Um, well, and, it's actually, it's, but, it's it's interesting that the, that it's not actually the butchers there that were that were you know leading the, the the new dishes, but it's actually the people who were working in the slaughterhouses themselves, right? Who right. who would be paid in kind. Uh, with meat, and not just that. You know, obviously, if you're being paid in meat, you're, they're not going to give you the prime cut. So what they would happen is they would give them the the fifth quarter of the animal. And if you think of, you know, there's no such thing as a fifth quarter. So the fifth quarter was actually the awful or the the parts that got thrown away. And these dishes, these cuts of meat, gave rise to certain dishes out of out of necessity of a kind of cucina povera. Hmm. And some of those dishes have become now they've and they were served in in some of the local restaurants in that neighborhood in Tosato. Now you, you find them in a lot of different restaurants in different neighborhoods, right? Can you describe some of those some of the different restaurant the different dishes of of the awful? Yeah, I mean one of the the, the iconic is is tripa la romana, which is tripe. And in Rome, the tripe is often is you know tripe is eaten all over Italy, but in Rome, it's it's a specific dish that's made with a little sprinkling of pecorino cheese and also mint, which makes it very distinctive. Um, another dish that you find is something called coratella, and coratella is a seasonal awful dish because uh, people sort of think of meat as meat as being all you know all year long, but certain cuts of meat are you only eat, consume different times of year, and coratella is the um, the liver, the lungs, and uh, the heart of a baby lamb. And so the lambs are slaughtered in the spring. So, so coratella is something you eat in the spring, and since it is in the spring, you often eat it sautéed with artichokes, which are also a springtime vegetable. Mm, wow, sounds delicious. That mm-hmm. I did not have, um, although I was there for artichoke season. And that's, that's, that's interesting because um, a lot of people, other than you know, for artichokes, don't think of vegetables as having a, a major spot on the Italian plate, and yet meat is not eaten in abundance. It's it's off. It's not the center of the plate. It's often to the side of the plate, and vegetables are a big part of it. Correct? 
Correct, yes. Vegetables are a very big part of, it, not, not just Italian cuisine, but Roman cuisine specifically. And it's funny, because people always ask me, you know, they're here on vacation, they go into restaurants, and they say, but we never see any vegetables. Why aren't there ever any vegetables? You know, because you, you order your pasta, then you order your main course, and they don't come with vegetables. And, and people don't see them on the menu either. And the thing that you don't realize is that vegetables are actually so important to Romans that they're communicated verbally by the waiter because they change every day. And so Romans really know to say what is there as a side dish today. And the waiter will, you know, reel off the five or six seasonal vegetables that they have and, and, and then, you know, people will order them. But it's often something that goes missing if you're not if you're not in the know. Yeah, correct. Um, what uh, there, you talk about um, Restaurants that you like, and they tend to be a lot of the the older traditional restaurants. And you live in a very ancient part of the city, and um, you like the the old kind of the old school trotters. Not to say that you don't appreciate the the innovative restaurants, but uh, you gave a, a nice little story about well talked about the history of of Austria and Trattoria, which a lot of people are not aware of, and. Um, and the difference between a, a ristorante, a restaurant, and a, and a trattoria, but that trattorias in Austria started out a little differently from what they are today. Can you talk about well, that? Well, the original osterie uh, were a place where you could come bring your own food, and they were places that actually served wine and maybe had a table, and you would bring your own food, and by food I mean it could be just as much as a hunk of bread and, and an, uh, an onion, you know, if you're a worker, and you could buy, you know, a little glass of wine or, you know, a half a liter of wine and be on your way. And eventually these uh, people who had these places would start serving very, very, very simple food. Uh, whether it's, you know, p- pasta or, or maybe eventually a second course. And these were the first restaurants and the, the first Osteria and the Trattoria that, that started springing up in Rome. And, and, you know, up until very recently, by very recently, I mean 20 years ago, there were still a lot of these really simple places, you know, that had paper tablecloths and, and chunky glasses and, and with no reservations and, and you know, squished-in tables. Um, those, sadly, are, are disappearing and, and giving way to sort of more a tour fancier uh, kind of dining. Um, some of the newer restaurants, though, in Rome are sort of going back to this, to this tradition, though. So I've seen a lot of younger people start to take over these old trattoria, and while they definitely up the food uh, quality and sophistication, they've tried to keep a relaxed atmosphere, which is very nice. Yeah, and that you know that the decor, the sort of the simple or lack of decor, I guess you would yes. say, um, is there is just something very homey about it. But you're right; it used to be. I can remember because it, it was a long time back that I was there. But I can remember looking down small alleyways and small streets, and it looked like someone was just having a family party and outside their apartment building, you know, in this little narrow street. But in fact, it was an osteria. There would just be some tables, and and neighborhood workers were all jammed in. Whether they brought their own food or not, I don't know. But it was not—it was not exactly welcoming to an outsider. It was—you had to sort of know about it, you know, and, and be there and, and sit down and eat with them. But today there are now you know, such a variety of of dining opportunities in in Rome and the ristorante, especially. Now, uh, tell us the differentiation between a ristorante and a trattoria. Well, I, when, when people say ristorante, they tend to mean a place, first of all, it has to do with the, um, 
the offerings in terms of service. And by service, I mean, you know, having a, a cloth tablecloth, having, you know, different cutlery, having a little bit more sophisticated uh, glassware. But also it has to do with having, you know, several, usually the ristorante will have several, you know, full-time waiters there who are professional waiters and so it has to do as much about the service as about the food and the food tends to be a little more sophisticated as well i mean although you'll find you know matriciana at a trattoria as well as a ristorante a ristorante will serve it you know use a little bit better ingredients they'll serve it in a, in a more uh, elegant way um and then and then of course there's you know very very fancy ristorante as well you know some michelin star places and things like that but Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other level. All right. In fact, there was one restaurant that I visited upon your recommendation, and <laughs> and another friend who uh, who's been on the show too, and and um, it was called Metamorphosy. And he actually, well, not a Roman chef, I have to say, he's uh, Colombian, I believe. And right, right. Ray Cotera, right, Ray Cotera, and he actually. Um, uh, deconstructed a lot of the traditional Roman dishes, and it was it just it was very interesting the way he he took those dishes, the flavors of those dishes apart, and mm-hmm. then yet presented them on a plate in a non-traditional way. And but the flavor was there of that original right. dish. <laughs> and he's he's an extraordinarily uh, talented chef, and I think it takes like a lot of talent to do something like that. And um, and you know, metamorphosis is definitely a ristorante. You know, it's definitely high up there and sophisticated. But what I love also about uh, him is that he's he's basing his dishes on you know Roman cuisine, and he's also kept the atmosphere uh, very relaxed as well. Right, right. Well, what have you? What are some of the the major changes that you've? Now you've been living in Rome for uh, quite a few years. We don't have to say how many years, but it's been <laughs> it's been, been a long time, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, but what what was what are some of the changes that you've seen between traditional the popularity of traditional foods versus innovation? Has there been a you know a, a return to tradition, or is it still strong on the innovation side? What do you see? What or what well, have I you seen? Is, is an ever-changing uh, landscape. You know, it, there were so many years when nothing changed. You know, I, we can say I've been coming, you know, I've been living here on and off since the 1970s. And up until, say, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, there were really distinctions of, you know, trattorias, the ristorante, and then also bars or also cafes. And places had very distinct profiles, very distinct hours. There were certain things you could eat at certain times. And it was very rigid and also very predictable. A lot of that has opened up in the last 10 years where laws have changed. People can stay open all day long. People can serve whatever they'd like. And so there's been a lot of deregulation in the restaurant scene, for better or worse. Mm. I mean, on the worst scale, I've seen, you know, there's proliferation of places that are obviously just uh, aimed at tourists. But on the plus side, there's been a new generation, a younger generation of Romans who are opening places that, you know, they wouldn't have had the money to, say, open a real restaurant previously, but they can open a place where maybe they'll start with gourmet sandwiches. They see that's going well. They start to serve innovative breakfast food as well. You know, then they stay open for cocktails and they're serving something else. And they're able to adapt to the market in a way that they wouldn't have been able to previously. So that's given way to a lot of really exciting new change. Right. You know, and one thing that I noticed that um, you actually brought my attention to when I was there is that the the whole notion of uh, cocktail hour has just blossomed and boomed, something that I had not um, seen or, or had been aware of in years past. I'm, I mean, literally 
boomed so that they're spilling out of the doorways. Um, well, that's, that's something that has to do with a younger generation, and which I think is a very positive thing. You know, there's uh, the idea of meeting somebody for uh, an aperitivo. And, you know, in Italy, when you drink, it's not about getting drunk. It's about socializing. So naturally, if you're meeting somebody for a drink and it has alcohol in it, you also want something to eat. So uh, one of the great things now that's happening is there's places where you can go and get a drink and then eat something. Something comes along with your drink as well and enough to sort of fill you up. And, you know, it's not a heavy meal, but, you know, my, for instance, my daughters go out and have this and, and they meet somebody and it's, it's, their, it's their meal for the night. And it's not that expensive. They've had a drink. They've had something, you know, that's fun, that's light. And so this is also another new thing. You know, people are, it's it sort of added another uh, meal time to the daily schedule and a per, an aperitivo or a perecena is what it's called. A perecena, right? A little bit of food and a drink, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's great. No, and, and it's a it's a wonderful um, ambiance. You could tell it's just a, as you said, very social. It's all about socializing. Very social. Sweets. Let's talk about sweets because that is something that is um, different in the Italian custom as well. It's that dessert is not really part of the meal, but there is a time for sweets, but not at the end of the meal, right? Well, like for instance, you, for instance, gelato. You know, people love having gelato, but it's it's sort of hard to. It was very hard for me to figure out when you actually had gelato when I first <laughs> moved here, and it's it's this. You know, you, again, it's about socializing. You go out, you get a gelato, you go for a walk, and you don't have it right after your meal, but you have it sort of in the late afternoon. And by late afternoon, I mean five, six o'clock, more or less, right before dinner. <laughs> so it's it's sort of something that's. That's a snack. It's um, it's something that's a special occasion kind of thing. And and in general, you know, Italians, like you said, if you're eating at home at night, you don't have a big dessert. You have you have fruit after your meal. But on Sundays, you know, if there's a you know you have Sunday lunch, that's when you'd have a dessert. If you go out for dinner at a restaurant, you'd order a dessert. So they're they're always you know special occasion kinds of things. Right, right. Well, it is just um, remarkable that the. Uh, you know the food a lot of the food and a lot of the dishes as you say for a long time nothing changed but it's kind of nice that some things didn't change um and that's i don't want to end the segment without mentioning um for those listeners who may have not had the opportunity to to travel there to name a few and of course we think pasta of course is is as the um uh, iconic roman dishes and there are a few dishes that are specifically Roman that are still found on many, many menus, and um, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking what I'm thinking. Um, so, go ahead and describe whatever comes to your mind. What, 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 what would be just iconic? What would be yeah? What would be uh, iconic well, traditional? Have, you know the, the 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 iconic pastas, which is uh, cacio e pepe, which is made with grated pecorino cheese and pepper. You should also have if you add uh, guanciale to that, it becomes pasta la gricia, which is actually, you know, I think the more delicious version of cacio e pepe, which often gets overlooked. <laughs> right. Um, if you add an egg to that, it becomes carbonara, which is another iconic Roman dish. And then amatriciana, which is the tomato sauce with made with bucatini noodles and uh, guanciale again. So um, those you definitely don't leave without without having that. If you happen to be here, you know, during artichoke season, uh, carciofi alla Judea, which is a deep fried artichoke, is uh, pretty amazing. Um, all year long, I think, that, you know, because you're here and, and you want to partake of sort of customs, a great thing to do mid-morning is go to your local bakery, get a slice of hot pizza bianca, 
and get it to go and just walk around, you know, munching on your pizza, Bianca. And just about the only thing that Romans do eat in the street, right? Other than gelato. <laughs> Other than gelato, <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Right. Well, Elizabeth, as always, it's just such a pleasure to talk to you. And I want to remind our listeners that um, your book, again, is called Eating Rome. And you have lots of apps, and you can find out all about these apps at Elizabeth's website, which is elizabethminkeleyinrome.com. And we will have that up on our site, on our homepage as well. And all the different apps that you have, it's wonderful. And I thank you so much for sharing a little bit about, a lot actually, about Roman food culture. Thanks again. Well, thanks for having me, Linda. And thanks for listening in to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.